You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. To shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Well, you found us. For my co-hosts, Lauren and Joshua, this is Aaron Fishman. Somehow, a 60-win team from a season ago has snuck up on the league again. Yep, I'm talking about the Hawks. Listeners, you're in for a special treat as we caught up with Mr. Atlanta himself, Lang Whitaker, to find out more about those Hawks. If you don't know him from his decade plus with Slam Magazine, you'll surely have read or seen him on NBA.com or NBA TV, among other places. With a dog named Starberry, you know he lives and breathes basketball. Plus, he's a genuinely good guy. Okay, enough chatter. Let's bring him in. Thanks for coming on, Lang. It's really good to talk to you. Hey, what's going on, everybody? So not much. We're just excited to talk basketball. And just jumping right into it, you're just Atlanta, basically. <laughs> you're Atlanta through and through. I wrote something down that's ridiculous, but you can't spell Atlanta without an L, A, or an N. There's, <laughs> there's no G in it. But how close have you been following the Hawks this season? I know that you're doing the NBA at large. It's funny. I mean, I grew up in Atlanta, and I went to school there and lived there for a while after school. But I've, I've lived in New York for 15 years now, but... Almost every day on Twitter, people still ask me about living in Atlanta. <laughs> Even they're like, "How you know?" They ask me what the weather's like in Atlanta, stuff like that. And I have to explain I don't actually live there. But you know, I grew up watching the the Braves and the Hawks and the Falcons and UGA and Georgia Tech and all that. So I, I still follow them all very closely. In terms of just the Hawks, it was, it was last year was just an incredible season. Um, you know, considering what they went through in the off season with the ownership stuff and Danny yeah. Ferry and all that, and then. To win 60 games, I mean, nobody saw that coming. Yeah. So, so much has gone on. Yeah, it, it was – and then, you know, for the team to get sold during the season, like at the end of the season. And so it, it was a, just a pretty wild year last year, and it, it was fun. It was – you know, for so long it's just been like uh, Hawks teams that were okay, maybe sort of good. And, you know, to, to be a really good team all of a sudden, is, it was pretty fun. Yeah, I can see how that would be exciting as a longtime Clippers fan. It's definitely a new age. <laughs> so, but as the reigning regular season conference champs, in my opinion, I thought Atlanta was a little bit overlooked heading into the season. A lot of people have been talking about, besides the Cavaliers, seems like the Bulls, Raptors, Wizards, for example, and, and even the Miami Heat. Do you think that they were overlooked to some extent this season, uh, especially with Damari Carroll moving on and some people saying that that would hurt them pretty badly? Yeah, I think they were a little overlooked this season. I mean, I could, I understand last season them being overlooked. I mean, I, I wrote the Hawks season preview for NBA.com last season, and I didn't think they were going to be as good as they were. But uh, I think this season, the, uh, people sort of, I think, were thinking like they, you know, they lost to Mark Carroll, obviously, and they got swept in the Eastern Conference Finals by the Cavs and pretty convincing matter. And I think people kind of thought, oh, well, this team's just done and they're over and the, the Cavs showed how to beat them. And, but, you know, they, Demar Carroll, to me, his contributions on offense were a little bit overrated. I mean, he, he's a great player and 
he was our best defender in that starting five individual defender probably but offensively you know he, he did most of his damage on cuts and secondary moves and other people finding him and so i i feel like Bazemore has been really good replacement offensively probably not as good defensively as, as damari was and able to guard wing players but uh but he's been good and then tiago splitter it, it, that was their big problem last year was that they didn't have the size a lot of times and Going after Tiago Splitter gives him another rebounder and a guy who can play on the inside. He's different than Paro Antic was last year, and he doesn't want to shoot threes. He wants to get up underneath the basket. There's been some growing pains thus far, but uh, I, I do think the Hawks are probably overlooked a little bit this year. I, I saw like a lot of the, the over-under was like 48 wins, I think, for them. And coming off of 60, I thought, wow, that's, that's a, a pretty big dip. And I just never thought that was – in play really for them yeah i think that is kind of a big drop off I, I guess some people's rationale is they snuck up on people last year and maybe teams will be better prepared but they have just such a, a solid system in place and and all the guys play well with each other they get along off the court it just seems like a, a good group and led by a budenholzer who, who really knows what he's doing they, they love to pass the ball too yeah it's they're pretty remarkable they're fun to watch like even if you're not a Hawks fan or an NBA fan, they play offensively the way that it's, it's fun to watch. The ball moves. The, it never sticks. They find mismatches. They take advantage of that. But last night they, they, against the Jazz, there were two plays in the last 30 seconds where the Hawks called a timeout and, and Budenholzer drew up a play for them to run. And a lot of times people complain at the end of an NBA game that the last, you know, the last two minutes of the game just becomes iso ball or hero ball and – it's not fun to watch. It's just one-on-one, and you get a bad shot. Both times, Budenholzer drew up plays. The Hawks got wide-open shots out of it, but they missed both shots. But both times, he, he managed to get the guys in just perfect positions to be successful. And I think that you know speaks a lot to the Hawks' system and, and why it's so successful, because Budenholzer is so good at figuring out how to make these guys be in positions where they can succeed. Hey, Lang. This is Joshua. Hey, Josh. It's been a great start for Paul Millsap just across the board. It's amazing how balanced he is as a player, passing, defense. Now even he's been great on the defensive glass this season. Is there a reason why he's so much better on the defensive boards this season as opposed to the past? I don't know um, if there's a reason for that particular thing. I, I think you know since he came to Atlanta, his game has really expanded from where he was in Utah. I mean, he's knocking down three-pointers and, and shooting a lot of three-pointers. I think the whole time he was in Utah, he had 31 three-pointers, or, or he made 31 three-pointers, and, and now he's you know probably shooting three or four a game. I, I just think the thing I like about Millsap is, is he's so steady. He'll if he, He's so good at recognizing where the advantage is. If he has a smaller guy on him, he'll back him down and put a spin move on to get to the rim. If he has a bigger guy, sometimes he'll back it out, take a three. He'll pass. He makes the right pass. He finds the open guy. He's good at spotting cutters. Uh, he, he gets rebounds, like you said. I I think, and you know, the thing is, he's so quiet. and He never does, like, stuff off the court. Uh, you never see him doing commercials, I mean, things like that. He manages to, to just be so impactful, though. And I, I thought last year he was the most important player on that Hawks team. I know there was four All-Stars, and they were balanced, and lots of different guys contributed. To me, he was the most important guy. And that shoulder injury he had right at the end of the regular season, and, you know, they kind of downplayed it. They said he was going to miss two games, and then he ended up missing more than that. 
he just never looked right to me in the postseason. And and I thought that had as, as much of an effect as anything else did with the Hawks not doing well against Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, and he nearly beat his old team, missed a potential game winner against the Jazz in a one-point loss on Sunday. Yeah, that was the and that he he had Rudy Gobert one on one and he basically broke Gobert's ankles and made him stumble off to the side and then missed a four footer. But yeah, he that I mean that's a, but that's a good, good example of you know they they got him in a position where he could take a guy and a guy he was able to take off the dribble Gobert and he he did what he was supposed to do he just didn't make the shot. I, I guess against a guy like Gobert. The stifle tower, you have to do something to get that guy's length out of the way. Yeah, you know, and, and Splitter attacked him a lot during that game and went to the rim and tried to shoot over him and got a lot of shots up over him, didn't make a lot, but he was able to get to the rim and get shots over him. But I thought it was really smart to, to make Gobert try to defend off the dribble because right. clearly he wasn't able to do it if you watch <laughs> yeah. the replay of that play. You know, that was the, the right call and the right right thing to do. It just didn't work for the Hawks. Let's talk about Dennis Schroeder. He's only yes. 22 years old, and he's really coming into his own. He was pretty good last season, too. He's taking more shots. He's getting more assists. What do you see about um, with his evolution? Uh, the thing I love about Schroeder is he does a lot of stuff that I think he doesn't know he's not supposed to be able to do. He, he has a, a confidence that makes him a problem for other teams. I mean, uh, athletically, there's nothing he can't do. I mean, he's as quick as anybody else, as fast as anyone else. And defensively, he's able to just get right up on opposing ball handlers. And, and, you know, he's got long arms. He's good at pounding the ball, getting his hands in there. Offensively, I mean, every once in a while, he'll try to dunk on someone. There was a play last night where after the – I can't remember who it was. After the shot went up, I think it was Trey Burke. Somebody hit a three, and and Schroeder kind of walked over to him and shook his finger at him. You know, last year he dunked on the Suns and then stood over Archie Goodwin, and and, <laughs> and, and you know, so he does a lot of stuff like that that he probably shouldn't do. He's and, too young to know any better. Yeah, he's too young to know any better, and that's what makes it fun <laughs> to watch because you never know what he's going to do. He's he's got a lot of swag. That's a good way to say it, and uh, I, I enjoy watching him. And he, he, I mean, he's only twenty two. He's going to be really good for a really long time in the NBA. He's getting better. He's like his three pointer is better this season than it was last year. He's got more confidence on the offensive end. I, I think he's going to be a guy who, two, three, four years from now, is going to be starting for somebody and playing heavy minutes and, and being a, a leader of a really good team. Last season, Jeff Teague and Dennis Schroeder played one hundred ninety minutes together. And the results weren't spectacular. They weren't horrible. They were just about average. And so far, they've struggled when they've been on the court together this season. What do you think the the problems are with playing them together? Do you think they're too small? And can their quickness outweigh any drawbacks? I think it should. There's times when the two of them are out there together and, and they, you know, Schroeder is best when he has the ball in his hands. When he when he's out there with Teague, Teague usually kind of shifts off to the to the two the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, Budenholzer didn't really use them together early in the season, it seems like. It seems like he kind of figured that out toward the end of the uh, – maybe around All-Star. But it was more the last couple of months of the season he went to that two-point guard lineup. I think more than anything as a change of pace, as a way when things aren't working, you try to throw them out there and see what happens, try to mix things up, get some steals, that kind of thing. But it doesn't always work. And I think those two guys have been trying to learn kind of on the fly how to play together and how they can both be successful at the same time. But but to me, both of those guys are kind of guys who need the ball to create and make things happen. And so I think maybe that's the issue with the two of them is, is you know, there's only one ball to use between the two of them. Hey, Lang, it's Lauren now. Hey, Lauren. 
I want to talk about Al Horford for a bit. He's for so sure. good, and <laughs> it seems like <laughs> that's the question. He's so I agree. Go. It seems like this, this season he's integrated the three a lot more into his game. He's taking a lot of them and making a good clip when they're running pick and pops instead of just going for a long two. He's popping out a little bit farther and taking the three. This season especially, it seems like a lot of bigs are adding that three-point shot. How important is that for bigs in this league now to have a three-point shot? Well, I think if you, if you can shoot threes and you're a big, that's great. You know, I don't think it's a necessity. Um, as we're talking here, I'm watching the Memphis-Oklahoma City game, and, and Marcus Hull's taking 18-footers. But he's not shooting threes. But, uh, you know, if you can make shots from, from distance, people are going to have to defend you, and it's going to open up the court for your teammates. If you can make a three, great. But I don't think, you know, all seven-footers should be able to knock down threes. With Horford, you know, the last three, four years, he got really, really good at those 17, 18 footers on the pick and pops, like you mentioned. And I thought last year, you know, we, we've mentioned this a couple of times now, how the Hawks looked terrible in the, against Cleveland in the playoffs. You know, the, the thing that to me was overlooked was the injuries they had, you know, Millsap got hurt right before the playoffs. Horford got hurt the first game against Brooklyn. He hurt his finger and just stopped shooting all those jumpers. He was making all season that opened up things for the Hawks all season long. He, he stopped shooting those jumpers. I, I don't know if his finger was broken or not. He claimed it wasn't, but Horford wasn't shooting. Teague rolled his ankle. Corver ended up getting hurt. And Tamari Carroll hurt his knee against Washington. All five of the starters were hurt by the time that Cleveland series rolled around. So I wasn't shocked that they looked so bad. But I think Horford being able to shoot opens things up for everyone else. You know, They lost Pero Antic, who was shooting about three threes a game. And I was wondering sort of where those threes would come from this season in the offense. And I think Horford may be the one who picks up the slack on that and ends up taking those shots. The thing about Pero Antich was he was a three-point shooter, but he didn't make a lot of three-pointers. He, he didn't mind shooting them, but he, he wasn't that great at it. Horford's pretty good at it. He hit a, They ran a play for him last night when they were down, I think, four for a corner three, and uh, and he, he nailed it. So I, I think for Horford, it's just sort of an evolution of where he's come from and, and where he's going, and it's going to just continue to make him a more diverse and, and valuable player in this NBA today. Yeah, speaking of three-point shooters – Obviously, Kyle Korver had a historic shooting season last season, but over the summer he had two surgeries and he missed all of training camp in the beginning of the season. Do you think we can expect a repeat of last season, or is there going to be a drop off for Korver? I don't know if it was if we'll see a repeat. I think a repeat for Korver would be about the best you could hope for because um, he was so good last year and he's getting older. I mean, I think he's thirty four now. Um, so it's hard to believe uh, you kind of forget about his age. Yeah, I mean, he's, this is thirteenth season, I think. So wow. he's been around. I think for the Hawks, biggest advantage they have with Korver is that they have Mike Budenholzer, and he's going to find ways to get Korver shots. And I think teams have made some adjustments you've seen this season. Um, they're all over him when he comes off screens and picks more so than they ever were last year. And I think Boone now, it's in his hands to try to figure out a way to shake him free in ways that he couldn't get free before. I want to talk about Kent Bazemore for a second. This is a guy who basically when he was on the Warriors, he was a glorified mascot for the team notably best bench celebrator in the NBA, but now it seems like he's become a hugely competent role player. He's been huge in filling the void left by Damari Carroll. Is that just a result of the trust put in him by the coaching staff? His minutes are way up. 
and he's asked to do a lot more than he was last season? Or what else can we attribute his improvement to? I think part of it is that trust. Part of it is just the maturation of a player being in the NBA for a couple of seasons. Part of it was getting to sit and watch Damari Carroll last season and see how he was successful. You know, this season, the Hawks opening night against Detroit, Bazemore got the start and he was terrible. Had a couple turnovers, just didn't look comfortable, couldn't get going. And then after that first game, he really settled down and settled into, I think, what his role is. You know, he he's a little more forward offensively than than Damari was, meaning he's able to get to the basket and do more with the ball than Damari did. Um, was better just kind of moving without the ball, getting into an open spot, and then his teammates would find him. And I think as Bazemore kind of learns and learns to trust, you know, that, that takes a lot of trust from an NBA player to, to know that if I move around without the ball and put in all this work, I'm going to get rewarded. And I think he's sort of learning that now, Bazemore is, that uh, it'll work. The, the other thing I think that you can sort of attribute his, uh, his growth this season to is the Hawks put a whole lot of work into personal development. You know, they do on off days, on mornings when they when they don't have games, shoot arounds, whatever. They have specific drills they want each player to work on that they think will you know, if, if this guy works on this specific thing, it'll help the whole of our team. And I know that Bazemore put in a lot of work last year that we probably didn't see. You know, games where he didn't play, he might shoot after the game or things like that, or they might have him work on shots from specific areas. I know one place the Hawks had uh, asked Bazemore to, to focus on was corner threes, and he's he's been lights out from the corners. So I think that speaks to the work he put in also. You alluded to this earlier about Tiago Splitter being a beneficial addition in the offseason. He's still new to the team, but he has that background with Budenholzer in San Antonio. How do you think he can best integrate Splitter on both ends? I think defensively, it's it's kind of simple, or at least more simple than offensively. Defensively, they just need him to, to be a presence in the paint and to grab rebounds and, and defend at the rim. And he's he's been pretty good defensively already offensively i think it's going to be a little more of a issue and and it's not really up to bootnoser to me i think it's more the teammates and and both ways i think splitter's got to learn his teammates and how they like to move with the ball there's been a lot of time so far where early this season where splitter on offense just seems like he doesn't really know where to be on the court and the the ball hits him in the hands and he hasn't really finished well either he, he's missed a lot of shots 10 feet and in and I don't know if that's something that if he just doesn't attack the rim like he should be or, or if he's doesn't, you know, if he's a little hesitant or what. So I think that's something, too, that, to keep an eye on. But but he, I, he, I think that's going to get better. That's the thing with Budenholzer. I mean, there's a reason he's such a good coach. He, he figures out how to make people successful, and he, he's going to figure it out eventually if you give him the time. You know, 82 games is a long time, and, and he's 10 games into it. I think by the end of the season, they'll have it figured out. It's great to see Tabosefalosha healthy again after how his season ended last year. His impact sometimes goes unappreciated, especially on the defensive end. How big is it to have him back on the court this season for the Hawks? You know, I mentioned earlier about all the Hawks starters being injured as they head into the playoffs. And Tabo was hurt too. You know, that, that's the other thing that, you know, all season long when Tamari Carroll would defend a LeBron James or, or whoever on the wing, whenever 
Carroll would get into foul trouble, Taba was the first guy in and and would be able to give another couple of fouls. And, and, and Taba's a really good defender on his own and offensive players got better on threes and was good at getting to the rim. So, you know, with, with, with him being hurt also and being out for the playoffs, I mean, it was it was just a rough last three months of the season for, for the Hawks and, and for Tabo. And thus far this season, he's moved into that rotation and picked right up where he left off. I think, you know, that's a huge addition. If you think of it that way for the Hawks, you know, they didn't have him in the playoffs that to add a Tabo Cephalosha to the, to that group that made it to the conference finals. That's a, that's a pretty nice addition. I hate to mention the Cavaliers again, but one thing that was a challenge definitely for them in overcoming the Cavaliers, which they weren't able to do, was was lack of size, especially compared to all those bigs, those right. offensive rebounding bigs that Cleveland has. Do you think that's the primary weakness, if you had to pinpoint one for this team in trying to get back to the Eastern Conference Finals and beyond, or is there something else that could be just as, if not more important? I think, yeah, no, to me, the, the size is their biggest weakness, and that's really only applicable against Cleveland. Cleveland's like the, the one team in the East that is just stacked on the inside. You know, I mean, even like in their division, Washington has gone to like a, a more of a pace and space and yeah. smaller, you know, point guard and, and with Nene playing the five and, and a small lineup. And I think you're seeing it around the league now, and, and Cleveland's the one team that's got all these guys that, that can – pound the boards and get rebounds and you know they've even added guys like Sasha Khan and, and other big so I think Cleveland's that that's Atlanta's uh, issue against Cleveland is just not having the size to bang with them inside I do think that you know if, if Horford's healthy and making jump shots and, and Millsap's healthy and making jump shots it changes things a little bit against Cleveland you know and it makes them the Cavs have to come out and defend them and and you know not be able to pack the paint so much like they were right. and the, you know the Hawks played Cleveland well during the regular season when and they were able to use Tamari and, and Tabo on, on LeBron but once they got into the playoffs and they were just kind of the walking wounded it was a totally different thing I, I think the Hawks will be okay against them this season but uh, yeah size is is an issue it's going to be an issue for the Hawks against Cleveland it's going to be an issue for everyone against Cleveland last Monday the Hawks lost at home to the Timberwolves. And while that may sound like a horrible loss, it might be considered a moral victory since they <laughs> came back from 34. Yeah. Only barely lost. I know coaches and players hate that term, but do you think this Hawks team can use that as a galvanizing force or um, maybe reference that when they're facing adversity this season? I'm sure they, I'm sure some coach will bring that up. I mean, to me, the well, there are two things. I, I don't think it's embarrassing anymore to lose to to be down 30 points to the Timberwolves because this Timberwolves team is pretty good this year it's a new uh, day yeah the but the other thing I mean you know that was the Hawks seventh game in 10 days and they had, had a four and five road trip right before that you know having that many games and the, the Hawks I think I still think I'm not sure if this is still true but I think up till yesterday they had played the most games in the NBA so far that was you know just I wasn't surprised. I knew they were going to be due for one of those games where, you know, it happens in the NBA uh, where a team just is tired and and they just can't bring it and they're flat. And I think the Hawks, I I knew they were going to be due for one of those. I thought it was going to happen on the fourth of that four and five against Washington, but they, they didn't, they, they came out and they competed. They beat Washington. You know, I, I didn't really care that they lost to the Timberwolves. I, I just, if they went, once they went down 30 something, I was like, well, that's not a good sign. And, 
you know, you go down 15, 20, okay. But then they came back. To me, that was the comeback was almost as good as a win in that yeah. circumstance. And, and uh, so I, I don't really – Count, you know, the the thing I've learned covering this league for 14, 15 years is it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You lose one game here and there, you kind of have to just look at it in the bigger picture. And I think that's one thing Budenholzer is really stressed with these guys is, you know, it's about process and it's about the whole journey, not just one game at a time. We all talk about this so much. It's sort of become a cliche. The Hawks are the epitome of a true team. They're so balanced. They don't really have any superstars. But can you tell us anything about how close this group actually is? I know they like to go out, have meals as a team, and do things as a team. I mean, I think, you know, what really speaks to the fact that these guys get along and they're a real team and everything was after all the ownership stuff that they went through in last offseason and stuff with the general manager and all these different things and people writing them off, they put together the best season in franchise history. And these guys, I think, really kind of had a mentality of we're going to band together and we're going to make this, we're going to make the best out of this thing. We, we're a band of brothers in this locker room. And I think that's the way they feel. And, and you could see, you know, when they don't get too high, they don't get too low. Four all-stars. Like, they don't care <laughs> if one guy makes it or if four guys make it. So I know I don't really have any stories about these guys going out to a, a movie or something, but I do think that that they, I do know that they get along and they like each other and, and like most great teams, there's something there. I think that that works uh, uniquely with these guys. It does well, seem pretty rare though in today's NBA to have have a group of guys going out to eat together. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Lang, I, I can't stress enough how exciting and just how cool it is to talk to you because your passion. Not just about the NBA, but the Atlanta Hawks. It, it's very obvious when talking to you. <laughs> you guys must be really bored if it's exciting to talk to me. <laughs> you guys must have a boring life. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you're just being humble over there. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, hey, I don't. I, I love talking basketball, and um, I appreciate you guys asking me to come on. I'm the first Southeast Division podcast. You that's are. an honor for me. You so will be remembered you. forever by all Go of us. Go down in history for that. And all of our 10 <laughs> listeners will definitely remember you forever. So. Look at now you, trivia, perhaps. <laughs> now you have 11 listeners, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lang. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back later in the week with more Hawks discussion and who knows what else. 